Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Emma Dawson. Uh, I'm the Executive Director at Per Capita, and I'm delighted today to be chatting with Andrew Lee, uh, whom uh, most of you are probably joining through his Facebook page, so probably doesn't need a long introduction. We're here to talk about whether or not young people will bear the cost of the coronavirus rebuild. The economic shock that we are living through at the moment is the greatest in Australian history. Um, and we know that uh, the, the measures that have been taken so far to support the economy in the face of the immediate health crisis have been very necessary, but have required the government to take on a lot of debt. Uh, and I believe my, my understanding is that we're going to need even more stimulus spending on the other side to help our economy recover. Um, but I'm going to invite Andrew to say a few words about his thoughts on this and what this means for intergenerational inequality in Australia um, before we have a bit of a chat and then have some questions from all of you. Andrew. Thanks so much, Emma. And can I begin by acknowledging the Ngunnawal people and whose lands I'm speaking to you from today. Uh, thanks to Per Capita and to you personally, Emma, for uh, auspicing this discussion. Uh, per Capita is an enormously important voice uh, in the progressive conversation around ideas uh, and will be increasingly important, I believe, uh, in the years ahead. Uh, the policy cards have all been thrown up in the air by coronavirus uh, and we're going to have uh, some serious challenges ahead of us in working out how public policy shapes up and how the progressive left steps up uh, and uh, working out how we respond to coronavirus. Uh, at the outset, of course, we know that uh, coronavirus uh, has a health impact which disproportionately hits older people, uh, much more so than uh, the uh, influenza pandemic of 1918. Uh, this seems to be a virus uh, which is most deadly for older people. And so most of the public policy uh, response, most of the health response, has rightly been focused on older, older people. Uh, many of us are concerned about uh, older neighbours, about our parents or grandparents, uh, about those who are in nursing homes. Uh, as we step up to the economic response, however, it's also important to think about how that might fall disproportionately on young people. Uh, and the irony that uh, a reaction to a virus uh, which worst afflicts afflict older Australians uh, might end up putting the worst economic burden onto younger Australians. Uh, I want to talk about that uh, in, a, in a couple of different ways. Uh, first of all, we'll look at, let's look at the job losses. Uh, over recent weeks, uh, over just a five week period, the Australian Bureau of Statistics estimates that one in 13 Australian jobs has gone. In the hospitality sector, a third of jobs have gone. In the arts and recreation sector, a quarter of jobs have gone. And the job losses have been particularly concentrated uh, among younger Australians. Uh, they've been the ones uh, working in these face-to-face -face sectors uh, who've in many cases lost their jobs. Uh, parallel to that though, many young people haven't been able to get the support that's been provided. Uh, we put in, Australia put in place a wage subsidy scheme, the JobKeeper scheme, as a result of significant pressure on the government uh, from business, unions and the Labor Party. Uh, that's a really important scheme because it, it ensures that we don't break employment relationships unnecessarily. Uh, but one of the key groups that's been left out of it uh, is uh, people who are casual workers who've been with their employer for less than a year. Again, disproportionately younger people bearing the burden. People have the opportunity of uh, supplementing their income through tapping into superannuation. And it's uh, disproportionately going to be younger workers who will bear the largest cost of that. If you take $20,000 out of superannuation now, that could cost you $50,000 or more in retirement savings as you miss out on, what, on the uh, magic of accumulated earnings. Uh, so young people may find themselves bearing that burden much further on. Uh, we also know that uh, the labour market is going to be tough. When the labour market is tough, uh, those with the least experience find it hardest to get work. I graduated high school in 1990 in the teeth of the last Australian recession. Got to tell you, when unemployment is double digit, young people just don't get a look in. Uh, I'm really scared about that uh, in an environment in which we've already known it's pretty tough for young people to break into the labour market, uh, in which people have been documenting in recent years uh, the fact that university graduates often aren't going into full-time jobs, but are going into part-time jobs. And that's before coronavirus hit. So I'm concerned that as a result of this crisis, the labour market uh, will be even worse for young people. 
the natural response to that is to boost the opportunities for young people to stay on to universities uh, or to undertake university training. But the government's kept the caps on universities, a, a mistaken decision at a time in which universities need that additional revenue uh, and young people uh, ought to be studying in droves uh, as the labour market uh, looks less attractive. Looking forward, uh, we know that young people will be uh, res responsible for paying back the debt disproportionately because they're at the beginning of their working careers. Uh, and so we need to ensure uh, that the measures put in place to repay the debt uh, aren't measures which hurt the very people who suffered most economically through the crisis. Uh, we need to ensure that uh, the coalition doesn't get away with a rerun of their horror 2014 budget uh, in which they're simply looking at cutting university supports cutting programs that assist young, young people. Uh, we need more apprentices, more university places, uh, more support for vulnerable people. Uh, we will not fairly repay this debt uh, if we're in Australia that defends every loophole for multinationals and millionaires that currently exists in the tax code. Uh, Emma, I know you've got a lot of uh, very engaged and articulate people on the call. Uh, I'm really here looking forward to the conversation with you and with them. So let me leave my opening statement there. Thanks, Andrew. Um, all, you know, a really great rundown there of all the points I think are emerging as we go through this crisis. Um, and I, I'm going to kick off with a discussion about education because I think, you know, you've raised mm. that as a central issue and it's really important. Um, as we do come out the other side of this and, and face what is, you know, an entirely new economic uh, circumstance, uh, one that we haven't seen for over 100 years, really, young people will be emerging from school and from uh, vocational training, from university, whenever it is that they enter the job market, that job market will be uh, the hardest we have faced since the 1930s. Um, and at the same time, we've seen uh, years of successive um, running down of the vocational education system, privatisation that has uh, backfired in a lot of ways um, and as you said making access to university harder for, particularly for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. Um, what are some of the measures you think that uh, Labor should be advocating for to ensure that we can train and skill up our young people, give them the best chance of getting a job and also things that we can put in place to help uh, identify where those skills gaps might be and what kinds of education and training is going to be most useful for young people seeking to enter the labour market? Uh, Emma, as economists, we know that the uh, biggest cost of, uh, attending, uh, of taking on further education uh, isn't the tuition you pay, it's the earnings you forego. Uh, so at a time in which the labour market turns sour, uh, the opportunity cost of education goes down considerably. Uh, we saw in the last Australian recession a big increase uh, in the school uh, completion rate. Uh, and it would be good if one of the silver linings of this downturn uh, were a big increase in the tertiary attendance rate uh, at a time in which the opportunity cost of university has declined. Uh, but we'll only get there if we make uh, ensure that our schools are better serving young Australians. Uh, the OECD's PISA test has been tracking maths, reading and science performance of Australian teenagers since the year 2000. Every time the OECD comes back, uh, our teenagers are performing worse than they had in the previous, uh, previous surveys. The drop is so large that now our year nines are scoring where our year eights scored uh, in the year 2000. So it is a very big drop uh, and it's affected the ability of young Australians to be ready for tertiary, tertiary studies. Uh, the answer to that, I think, is uh, better investing in teachers and ensuring uh, that we have more resources in place to attract and retain great people uh, to the teaching profession, uh, getting even more terrific teachers into our classrooms. Uh, in the area of uh, vo uh, vocational education, we've had a drop off in apprentices and trainees, uh, exactly the opposite of what you'd want in Australia, uh, in which uh, automation requires skilling up the Australian workforce. Now, and one other little plug. Uh, I wrote a book with Joshua Gans last year called Innovation Plus Equality, which argued that there's a lot of sweet spot policies we can pursue that will not only get us more growth, but also more egalitarianism. Uh, one of them is providing more resources to would-be entrepreneurs from disadvantaged neighbourhoods. Uh, that's in, in terms of both uh, investment backing and also mentors. Uh, there's a lot of 
lost Murray Curies, lost Albert Einsteins uh, in vulnerable suburbs around Australia. Uh, we need to tap into the talents of all Australians uh, to, uh, to, to get our startup community going again. It's a great point, actually. And I think one of the challenges um, in that area is that the pathways even beyond education into uh, industries uh, that have opportunities, high, you know, high tech industries, advanced manufacturing industries. Um, we don't make much in Australia anymore. And a lot of those really smart uh, knowledge workers, engineers, people that are coming out of um, university with good STEM skills, uh, some of our best and brightest are going overseas for the opportunities. What do you think we need to do to um, improve the industrial mix? And the, I know you've written a lot about the lack of diversity in the Australian economy. Um, is, isn't that an important part of ensuring those opportunities are there? It certainly is. Uh, there's a, an index called the Harvard Index of Economic Complexity, uh, which looks essentially at whether countries have too many eggs in too few baskets. Uh, they rank Australia uh, around Morocco and Senegal, not typically countries with which we'd compare ourselves in economic performance. Uh, we rank lowly because we don't have a diversity of industries, either in manufacturing, as you mentioned, Emma, or indeed also in the services sector. So we do need to do, do more to ensure we've got greater diversity. For me, that starts with competition policy, ensuring that uh, our markets aren't dominated by a couple of large firms, but we get more startups. Uh, the startup rate's actually fallen uh, if, you, uh, if you use appropriate measures uh, since the beginning of the, uh, the millennium. So getting more startups is, uh, is critical. I'm not perhaps so worried as, as some about people going overseas to, uh, to, to try to chance their hand. Uh, I spent four years in the States, uh, learned a lot from it and uh, brought some of those skills back to Australia. Uh, I find it interesting that when our actors go to Hollywood, uh, we think it's terrific. When our startup boffins go to Silicon Valley, we think it's terrible. Uh, in both cases, if they're coming back uh, and bringing some of, those, uh, so some of those ideas back here, we're benefiting from the circular migration that's inherent in the, in the diaspora. Uh, we do need to make sure that, uh, that in all those cases, people are going to seek new opportunities, uh, not because we're driving them away through a, through a lack of any opportunities here. Yeah, I think that's critical. I think, you know, uh, a few years overseas is a, is a good thing for a young person. Um, but if they do want to come back, uh, there, sh there should be good careers for them to come back to. Um, Nicely put. Yeah. One of the things um, that I find really interesting in this debate is whenever whenever the left starts to talk about wanting to rebuild manufacturing, although I, note, I notice that the Prime Minister's been making some noises in that regard as well lately, um, but whenever we talk about that, people instantly start screaming about protectionism. Um, and obviously, uh, you and I are not protectionists. We are uh, globalists and we think that um, free trade is a very good thing. Fair trade is a very good thing. Um, how can we, be, how can we rebuild those? Those industries without turning to the kinds of protections of old. I mean, there are obviously ways to do it, but interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, one of the uh, ways of thinking about it is to have more of a focus on new business. Uh, the dichotomy in Australia has typically bet been between small business and large business, uh, but increasingly people at the OECD are now saying, look, the line should be drawn between new and old business. Uh, and the, the older, older businesses, the established firms, they'll take care of themselves. But you need to think about the problems that new businesses face because an economy needs new firms uh, just as a, a forest needs new plants. Uh, if we're not growing new firms, then the risk is that the whole place starts to stagnate. You don't get the R&D, you don't get the new jobs, you don't get the fresh ideas. Uh, so we ought to be fostering creativity and ensuring that we have policies that, uh, that encourage uh, startups to, uh, to, to grow. Uh, part of that is the, uh, the access to mentors, part of it's the access to capital. Part of it, though, is also the competition laws that ensure that the big incumbents can't stifle the new startups, that the oak trees don't overshadow the saplings. Uh, and we can do that uh, in part by ensuring that it is uh, harder for those large firms just to snap up their competitors. Because if they can, then that's not just a problem for startups. Uh, it's also a problem for uh, the research and development done by big firms. Uh, why should a big firm invest in research and development? Why should it develop partnerships with universities if it knows that whenever it's threatened, it can simply buy its competitors? Uh, so thinking more rigorously about merger policy is, I think, one of the critical ways of ensuring we get more firms, uh, including more manufacturing firms.
So this is this goes to I'm seeing questions on the uh, coming through on the feed now about government's role in all of this, and I think you've given us a, a bit of an outline there of some of the policy areas that government can act in, um, and this is a really important part of the conversation because I think when um, when those of us on the progressive side talk about the role of government, it's often misrepresented as wanting a big state agenda and government running everything, whereas in actual fact it's about government working hand in hand with the private sector to create the right conditions for investment and for development. One mm. of the problems we saw going into this um, crisis was that the economy was already pretty much in the doldrums and wage growth was very low and labour productivity has been low for years and, and um, private sector investment in labour productivity, um, we've, we've actually seen a phenomenon of capital shallowing after the, over mm. the last 18 months. Um, so business hasn't been stepping up in that regard and I think um, that's also a function of a lack of competition in the marketplace. What how do we advocate for that role of government in, in driving innovation, in driving growth and sustainable growth, obviously what's going to be needed on the other side of this? Um, how do we advocate for that role of government without running into the trap of being called, you know, big state socialists? Yeah, there's two sort of visions for how you uh, improve productivity. Uh, the conservative vision is it's all about cutting. It's about cutting workers' uh, conditions. It's about cutting workers' rights, cutting unions out and cutting environmental regulations. Uh, the progressive vision is it's about investing. It's about investing in appropriate infrastructure. It's about investing in human capital. Uh, it's about investing in institutions such as good competition uh, regulators uh, that uh, keep start uh, get startups an opportunity. Uh, so by investing, we can be more productive and more egalitarian. Uh, I'm really excited by the, uh, by the prospect of boosting Australia's productivity. I think we can do it. I think we should be much more ambitious about raising productivity uh, because ultimately that's what's going to underpin wage growth. Uh, yes, we need unions in place in order to uh, fight for workers to get their fair share of the productivity gains, but there just haven't been those productivity gains to share around in the, in the course of the last uh, seven or eight years. Uh, we've really had a a productivity slump, the likes of which we haven't seen uh, over my lifetime. Uh, we need to uh, to, to get get uh, productivity going again uh, in order to uh, to underpin the wage growth that uh, that we need. Uh, not only to uh, to uh, improve living standards, but also to do all of the sort of good altruistic things that progressives care about. Uh, it's easier to tackle climate change in a, grow a growing economy. Uh, it's easier to be generous to the world's poor in a growing economy. Uh, whether or not you think we need to uh, build more submarines or raise new start, uh, you should be in favour of economic growth. So I'm very strongly a pro-growth progressive, very worried when I hear people in the Greens Party comparing uh, economic growth to cancer and suggesting that somehow we'd be better off if economic growth stopped. Uh, you know, we're about to have a big global experiment on that and I don't think most of the world's population will think it's, uh, it's a good thing. No, I agree. No, I'm caution people against watching Planet of the Humans if they haven't already. It's an enraging piece of television. Um, I think this is this really goes to the debate that we think we're going to have. And Per Capita released a letter last week, an open letter signed by about 25 prominent economists and thinkers, including John, John Quiggan and um, Nikki Hutley at Deloitte Access Economics. Um, calling for a commitment from the government not to pursue an austerity path. Um, and that's mm. what you're talking about, the approach of cutting things to try and pay down debt. Uh, our, our view at per capita, and I think it's what you're talking about here, is that the best way to pay down that debt is to grow the economy, um, to invest in people, to invest in jobs, uh, and to ensure that young people on the other side of this, that's what we're talking about today after all, um, have, a, have an opportunity for a good life because to, the way that we've put it at per capita, it isn't the debt itself that is going to threaten a future generation. It's how we respond to it and whether or not we respond by pay, shrinking that debt in proportion to the size of our economy by growing the economy or whether we uh, pay down that debt by cutting services and, and selling off assets. Um, mm. I think, you know, that there's a really important debate to be had about that um, in, uh, over the next few months. Um, I wonder what you see as as where the government's likely to go on this and what Labor's response will be to ensure that we don't uh, leave our kids and our grandkids with a shrinking economy and, an op and, a, and a worse lifestyle, a worse standard of living than their, than their parents and grandparents had. 
Yeah, it's going to be the uh, the next big conversation because while Australia's debt levels are still lower than the OECD average, uh, they're significantly above where the average has been for Australia over recent years. Uh, in rough terms, uh, the coalition won office in 2013 uh, with uh, net debt being about 10% of our annual income. Uh, they then took it to about 20% of national income. Uh, and as a result of COVID-19, it'll probably go to about 30% of national income. Uh, so a tripling of the Australian debt levels as a share of national income uh, over the course of, of the Conservatives being in office. Uh, not exactly what you would have imagined from a team that uh, promised that they would have the budget in surplus in their first year and in every year after that. Uh, we need to ensure that we learn some of the lessons from history. Uh, yes, economic growth was important in paying down the uh, debt in the post-war decade, uh, but so too was the fact that uh, during World War II, we introduced progressive taxation, uh, ensuring that there was uh, a fair sharing of that burden. Uh, in those, uh, those decades, uh, we paid down debt, but we also invested in, uh, in housing, big expansion of social housing. Uh, and that was the time when uh, conservatives didn't just believe uh, in housing as an investment, they believed in housing uh, as a consumption good. Uh, they said that was a period in which under Robert Menzies, the home ownership rate in Australia skyrocketed. Biggest increase in the home ownership rate Australia has seen in our history. Um, so we can do things like that. We can create a more inclusive economy at the same time as we're paying down the debt uh, if we make the smart choices. Uh, the risk is that everyone just goes back into their corners and uh, uh, ends up writing opinion pieces that take the form, why coronavirus proves I was right all along. <laughs> I'm sure we'll see a few of those along the way. Um, this Now, I'm going to throw this in now because uh, there have been a few questions on the feed in relation to this. Um, we're talking about the growth approach to, to handling debt, but also the growth approach to building the, the next economy for our kids. Um, when Per Capita put out a paper a couple of weeks ago about debt and said, look, try not to worry about it so much, actually, because if we do invest, we will grow, and that's the way forward. Um, Leith Van Onselen in, um, online accused us us of going full MMT, um, which I found quite hilarious uh, given the disputes I've had with modern monetary theorists over the years. <laughs> um, we have got a couple of people on the feed saying, you know, is, is modern monetary theory the answer to this? Um, and of course, the, a lot of them feel their time has come because there's no risk of inflation anytime soon. So we can just print money um, and spend our way out of the crisis. Uh, I know you've considered this um, theory many times and I'd like to get your views on it for the audience. Yeah, so personally, I like a lot of the modern monetary theorists and I think they are coming from the same progressive place that I am. Uh, but I think their prescription is wrong and I want them to be joining what I think is going to be the central fight in Australia over whether or not we're, we were able to find uh, a fair or an unfair way uh, of paying down the debt. I think we need as many progressive voices focused on that conversation, uh, not on the, the false promise of modern monetary theory. Uh, modern monetary theory has been tried in the past. It's not as though there haven't been countries that have said, uh, oh, look, we don't need to raise, raise taxes or cut spending in order to pay down the debt. We'll just print more money. Uh, and that generally has ended in tears. Uh, it's ended in tears in Latin America. Uh, it's been problematic uh, in advanced countries that have taken, taken that approach. Uh, and my read of the evidence is there is no reason to think that it would be different today. Uh, in rejecting modern monetary theory, uh, I'm not out on a limb. Uh, I'm entirely in accord with uh, progressive economists like Paul Krugman and Larry Summers, who have looked carefully at modern monetary theory uh, and compared it uh, to the Laffer curve approach taken by the right, that false promise that somehow you can cut taxes and raise revenue at the same time. Uh, I, it would be lovely if modern monetary theory worked, but theory and past experience tells us it doesn't. And so I'd say to those people who are championing it, please join us where we need you most. We need your passion, your values, and your ideas are in focusing on these central trade-offs. And we can't avoid those trade-offs uh, in order to, uh, to, to move to a fairer, a fairer system as we look to repay the debt.
No, and no, I'd second that call. I, um, I, there are a lot of very smart, very passionate, progressive people involved uh, thinking about MMT. And like you, I think um, the outcomes they're seeking are the same as ours, uh, which yes. is a stronger, fairer economy um, and one that isn't so obsessed with the sort of debt and deficit narrative, which is a negative narrative, but wants to promote a, a pro-growth, um, pro-good standard of living argument. So, uh, yeah, I think we all want the same thing and we need to work together at what is going to be a critical time in the debate. Um, so thanks, we've, we've tackled that issue. So I'm glad we got that out there. Um, look, a question from um, Janet McCullman um, about how we how we can work together to grow the economy. Um, a major impediment to better collaboration between universities and business and government is the astronomical overhead multipliers that universities lacking federal funding for research infrastructure have to charge. How can the relationship between business, universities and government be calibrated and what might that yield? Yeah, I, I'm really struck by the absence of uh, strong business governments, uh, sorry, strong collaborations between universities and business. Uh, if you walk around the campuses of uh, MIT and Stanford and the States, uh, you'll run across a whole lot of new spin-off startups uh, started by students and faculty. If you walk around the streets around Australia's biggest universities, you'll come across some lovely cafes. Uh, we don't have that tradition of spin-off institutions, which has served uh, the US very well, but also serves many other advanced countries well. Uh, part of it is how the intellectual property is managed. Uh, my personal view is that universities are holding too much of the intellectual property to themselves, uh, and that that is hampering innovation. It'd be better if they took a slightly uh, freer approach to, uh, to intellectual property uh, in order to boost the, uh, the aggregate amount of innovation. Uh, but I also think that uh, we need uh, some greater recognition uh, through the way in which the, uh, the tax credits are structured. Uh, the last inquiry into the research and development tax credit done by a Senate committee uh, recommended that there be a premium for collaboration with universities. It's one of the things Kim Carr has been championing very strongly. Uh, and I think that, uh, that, that plays into one of the, uh, to, to attacking one of the weaknesses in the system for Australia. Uh, we just don't have enough interplay between our corporate sector uh, and academia. Both sides could be better off from improving that relationship. Thanks, Andrew. Um, a question now from Dylan uh, via the Facebook feed. Given Australia's historical reliance on foreign investment for economic growth, how do we navigate encouraging the investment required to rebuild at a time that many are advocating for a more protectionist economic approach? Yeah, so here's how I think about foreign investment as a progressive, uh, Emma. Uh, I'm in favour of, uh, of migration. I think Australia has benefited enormously from migration uh, through the uh, uh, intellect, the talents, the hard work of, uh, of many migrants. Uh, but if you're worried that uh, importing more labour uh, could drive down wages uh, because it, uh, it, it uh, increases, or sorry, reduces the capital labour ratio, uh, then one way of dealing with that is also to import some capital at the same time. Uh, that'll get the capital labour ratio uh, back, back where it was. Uh, so if you're a progressive who is in favour of migration, but wants to ensure that we have strong wage growth, uh, you should also be in favour of foreign investment. Uh, the uh, popularity of foreign investment in Australia is, uh, is not much better than coronavirus, uh, but it's been uh, an important source of jobs uh, and of, uh, of wage growth over recent, uh, recent years. Uh, you think about that long period in which Australia produced cars uh, all, all through foreign investment until they were goaded to leave the country by Joe Hockey. Uh, you think about the Japanese investment in the beef industry, uh, US investment in a lot of uh, technology firms in Australia uh, and Chinese investment in a, in a whole uh, swath of our, of our economy more recently. Uh, as Neville Rand once said about uh, investment in agriculture, well, they can't take the land with them. Uh, we ought to be a little more sanguine about foreign investment. Um, at the same time, foreign investors need to pay tax. We need to have much more sensible debate around uh, national security screening. Uh, and we need uh, to get away from the discriminatory thresholds. Uh, but all, all up, I think we benefit from foreign investment. And of course, we benefit as, as foreign investors. Uh, as superannuation is, uh, is going now to, uh, for, you know, it's past the size of national income, it's going to twice national income. Uh, a lot of the, our superannuation is looking to invest overseas. 
to uh, to reduce the risk. Uh, and so it's not uh, likewise. It's not surprising that uh, foreign investors overseas look to invest in Australia to diversify their their uh, portfolios as well. Uh, this is this is all sensible economics, and for Australia, uh, it's a way of ensuring we increase prosperity. Uh, but the coming battle is uh, going to be between globalists and nativists, and I suspect foreign investment uh, will be a part of that. Uh, those of us who, uh, who want to see uh, more jobs and higher wages uh, ought to be arguing for keeping foreign investment open. Great, thank you. Um, I'm going to throw in another question of my own here, um, which is about, you mentioned earlier, in, uh, the investment in social housing after the Second World War. Um, mm. And an investment in public housing, something per capita has been calling for for a while. We released a paper yesterday on uh, social housing and how it not only we need more of it, but it needs to be the right type, particularly for an ageing population. Um, one of the Interesting pieces of research that came out yesterday from Swinburne Uni found that um, by 2040, half of households aged under 60 will be in the private rental market. Um, so I think there's a couple of issues here that I'd like to unpack with you for um, mm. younger people as they face these changed economic circumstances. Firstly, um, how do we make buying a home more affordable and obviously providing social housing to the bottom end of the market's part of that. But secondly, Australia, if we if we are going to have a, a much higher proportion of lifelong renters, and I think you know we will to, to some extent that's inevitable, how do we create a better market for them? One of the things that we don't have in Australia is the um, opportunity to, for people to have leasehold, long-term leases, um, build to rent properties, because our investment market, our landlords tend to be small mum and dad investors. Um, one of the things I'm interested in is whether there is a role for some of our large superannuation funds to invest in build to rent housing, or whether you see that as a fundamentally sort of, you know, some people have said to me, well, that's just giving up on home ownership for a whole generation. How do we balance those things? Uh, there'll be a, a share of the population for whom renting makes sense. And if we can get long-term leases, right, Emma, uh, that'll be a, a larger share. Uh, it goes back to one of the distinctions I made before that uh, for in, in many European countries, housing is treated as a consumption good. Increasingly in Australia, we've tended to treat it as an investment. Uh, and that's not always ideal for ensuring uh, there's a broad spread of, spread of access to a home ownership. Uh, the Grattan Institute had a paper a couple of years back in which they looked at uh, the rights a renter had in various advanced countries, you know, to have a pet, to put a picture on the wall without uh, checking with the landlord, uh, to paint a wall. Uh, invariably in other countries, these are things you can do. In Australia, they're things you can't do. And invariably in those countries, long leases are the norm. And in Australia, short leases have, uh, have become the norm. So improving renters' rights would make sense. And this, the notion of build to rent, which is effectively that you would have an entire building owned by a single superannuation fund renting all of the apartments out. Uh, well, that's very common in a, a place like Manhattan, but very unusual in Sydney, where uh, you end up then battling as a renter with your individual landlord and through some uh, through, through a rental agency, which has uh, not always got your best interests at heart. Uh, we also, though, need to uh, free up some of the, uh, the rules around uh, property invest investment or change some of the rules around property investment. Uh, I interviewed Malcolm Turnbull for my Good Life podcast and uh, recommend to people uh, the section in his new book where he talks about how strongly Scott Morrison felt that it was necessary to uh, wind back negative gearing and the capital gains tax discount. Mm -hmm. uh, those things would make a difference in terms of accessibility of home ownership, uh, as Scott Morrison rightly uh, said, uh, said to Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, but also we need to ensure that we're boosting supply. Uh, that we've got strong investments for uh, incentives for councils to be uh, zoning more medium density. Uh, one idea that the Harvard economist Ed Glazer put to me when we were last chatting about this uh, was that there might be some sort of federal pool of funds in which uh, local governments could, uh, could uh, reach into uh, if they exceeded targets for uh, zoning. Uh, so effectively, they could battle the NIMBY tendency by saying, well, uh, you might not like more medium density in, in your neighbourhood as, as a first principle, but uh, what if we tap into this federal fund, get a local swimming pool, uh, and then we're, and then rezone some uh, some some apartments into some areas uh, into say two and three storey apartments? That might be a kind of a grand bargain that would see an increase in housing supply. 
but all of these things we've got to be thinking about because the housing sector is is real. The housing construction sector is real strife right now. Uh, it was going backwards last year, uh, and it's now recorded some of its worst figures uh, in, the, in the or it has recorded its worst figures in 15 years. I, th I think that's um, well. We we've been strong advocates, as I said, for a, a, a big public housing build, and I, I know several Labor uh, members have said they think that's a good idea. And one of the reasons we've been advocating is it's a really good stimulus. It's unlike a lot of long-term infrastructure projects, you can get public housing builds up pretty quickly and has a flow-on effect because you're not just uh, stimulating the construction sector, but there's all the additional there's the the fittings and the carpets and the blinds and mm. the um, so that's something we've been um, we've been talking about for a long time. But you're right. There's a there's a mix of things needed. Um, I'm going to turn now again to a question from the Facebook um, feed, uh, or from the Zoom feed this time actually, um, from John Russell. Uh, can Andrew comment on the NIRU, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, and contrast this with the alternative offered by a job guarantee? So we're back to a modern monetary theory idea here. Uh, John says, particularly in the light of the high cost and poor performance of the JobKeeper payments. So the NIRU is, uh, is according to the Reserve Bank, probably uh, closer to uh, uh, 4% than 5%. Uh, There's some uh, lovely speech by, or uh, some important work done by Lucy Ellis, uh, which has highlighted that full employment may well be a, a lower level than we'd previously thought. Now, and I was quite critical of the government uh, last year for not being more ambitious in unemployment. You know, you had Germany, the US, Britain, New Zealand, all with unemployment rates of 3 or 4%. And here's Australia sitting up at 5% saying, well, that's good enough. Uh, the fact is, you get unemployment down, uh, and the last people to get hired are some of the most vulnerable. It's people with disabilities, Indigenous Australians, uh, people with le less, less experience, going back to our theme about the importance of focusing on young people. Uh, so we need to focus on getting unemployment down. We need to be more ambitious about unemployment. Now, right now, uh, policymakers uh, would give their left arm for uh, unemployment of 5%. Uh, it uh, could well be going to double that. Uh, but uh, long term, we need to be targeting a lower rate of unemployment. Uh, the JobKeeper scheme has been undersubscribed. We saw from the uh, Senate committee yesterday uh, that uh, there's about, it's about a million short of where it should be. Uh, but Josh Frydenberg can fix that. Uh, he has extraordinary personal discretion as a result of their JobKeeper package uh, and could include university sector workers some of the left out charity workers, uh, local government, uh, short-term casuals. Uh, all of those people could be brought back within JobKeeper. Uh, and the thing I like about JobKeeper, John, uh, is that it maintains the connection to the employer. Uh, so you can think of the economy as being a whole network of these personal connections. Uh, once you break an employer-employee relationship, it just takes a while to rebuild. It takes a while for people to find a, a good match. It's a matching problem uh, using economic jargon. Uh, and that's why unemployment tends to go up with the lift and come down with the stairs, uh, because those matches are more easily broken than they are remade. JobKeeper uh, has been botched by the government. I'd like it if they were doing it better. Uh, but fundamentally, this kind of a wage subsidy scheme that maintains that relationship is a good thing. It's why we called for it. It's why most advanced countries are doing just that right now. Thanks. Um, talking again about you know the, the jobs that people are doing, and and you talked earlier about the opportunity cost of university and the the foregone income while you're studying. A question from Bernard Wright via the Zoom platform is: How is the opportunity cost of university affected by the fact? that the jobs available to students while they're completing further education are highly insecure, which clearly during this shock has proved to be a big issue. Mm. Yeah, it, I mean, there's two things in that, Bernard. Uh, obviously, uh, if you're not able to uh, find work either way, uh, then that, that brings down what you'd earn while studying and it brings down what you'd earn while not, not studying. But pro uh, I think most economists uh, regard a poor labour market as reducing the overall opportunity cost of studying at university. Uh, but it also raises the question for government as to whether it's necessary to do more to support students who are at, uh, at university uh, if they can't get the part-time work that's typically supp supplemented uh, uh, student assistance payments. Um, so that's also going to be something we need to watch. 
uh, with the initial uh, uh, package that was rolled out by the government, uh, university students were left out entirely. And it was only through strong pressure from Labor that university students were included in those, uh, those additional payments. Uh, we've, we've got to recognise that universities are being hit in a whole host of ways. Uh, the withdrawal of uh, international students is costing some universities up to 25% of their budget, uh, but they've also got a powerful role to play uh, in the rebuilding of Australia. Uh, automation is increasing rapidly. Uh, and indeed, you know, we're having this conversation over Zoom. I think there's going to be a whole lot more automation uh, take, uh, taking place in Australian workplaces. Um, so less skilled people will find it even tougher in the labour market of 2021 than they did in the labour market of 2019. Uh, therefore, education matters all the more. As Claudia Golden and Larry Katz say, uh, inequality is a race between education and technology and, and we can't have uh, education left behind. Great, thank you. There's a couple of related questions um, coming, one from Brian Regan on Zoom, another from Sonia on Facebook. I'll start with Sonia's and lead into Brian's and you can answer them both at once. Um, Sonia's is, do you think the economic fallout from COVID-19 has increased the appetite for the kind of tax reforms the ALP took to the last election? Um, and Brian's getting more specific here. Getting, given the intergenerational debt us boomers saved from COVID by millennial job losses, is it time in the new normal for seeking bipartisan support for negative gearing and deep breath here, imputation credit policy changes? Uh, well, Brian, you'd uh, certainly, as I mentioned before, there, uh, there appears to be a bipartisan view on negative gearing. It's just that the uh, former property council lobbyist turned prime minister that we currently have uh, has chosen not to pursue that in the parliament. Uh, but if he'd like to uh, step, step up in a bipartisan fashion, I imagine he'd, uh, he'd find a, a ready year there. Uh, it is going to be important that we look for creative solutions through this. Uh, the answers are not all going to be found in uh, uh, reaching into our dusty top drawer and pulling out ideas that we were, uh, we were spruiking last year. Uh, I, among some of, the, uh, some of the challenges for Australia are uh, a fall in risk appetite that is inevitable when, uh, when something like this occurs. Uh, and the inevitable necessity of continuing to work on climate change. We haven't spoken much about climate, Emma, but uh, when we're thinking about intergenerational issues, uh, it's absolutely critical. Uh, for young people, uh, climate change is going to be something that they will live to a much greater extent uh, than older, older generations. Uh, and uh, using this as an opportunity to uh, continue that move towards renewables uh, is absolutely critical. Uh, renewables are falling in price, uh, but getting more energy efficiency, and I think that's, uh, that's, that's part of what you have in mind when you're talking about your public housing build, uh, as well as getting more renewable sources of, of energy while providing an appropriate transition for those working, working in uh, current coal-fired power stations. Uh, all of that's got to be a, a part of the rebuild as well. Yes, look, I think it's a really important point, Andrew, that this is the immediate crisis we're facing, but as and when we emerge from it, and if we eventually get a vaccine and, and get, you know, coronavirus under control, we will still be faced with the much more uh, chronic, if you like, this is an acute crisis, but we've got a chronic crisis of climate change. Um, mm. We were thinking about even before this virus hit, as you know, at per capita is how do we rebuild our economy and ensure that we maintain growth, but in a way that tackles climate change. And there are so many opportunities uh, in, a, in a nation with so many um, natural resources for us to lead the way on that. Um, I think it's a really critical part of the debate um, for, our, for our children's futures. Um, I'm actually going to go, there's a really great question here from um, Melanie Poole on Zoom, which, which speaks to something you've spoken a lot about, which is social mobility and, and generational inequality. Um, she says, in considering the issues around intergenerational debt and inequality, do we have any idea about the extent to which this may be offset through inheritance? And how might that shape the types of inequality we're dealing with in the future? For example, will the capacity for millennials to own a home and retire in comfort depend more on whether they inherit wealth than on anything else they may do? Hey Mel, great question. Uh, we don't talk enough about inheritances uh, as, a, uh, as a driver of inequality. Uh, the Grattan Institute I know has been doing some interesting work uh, combing through some of the Victorian probate records to try and get a clearer picture uh, about the way in which inheritances uh, affect social mobility. 
uh, back in the, back in the old days, uh, there was, uh, and I'm thinking here a couple of generations ago, uh, people would inherit a home from their parents uh, when they were having kids. Uh, now they tend to inherit from their parents when they're hitting retirement themselves. Uh, so uh, inheritances don't typically uh, help people through the, uh, the the home ownership hurdle, uh, but they do uh, exacerbate uh, intergenerational mobility. Uh, and we've got too little mobility, social mobility in Australia. Um, I've just published a, a paper with uh, Greg Clark and Mike Pottinger uh, looking at very long run intergenerational mobility in Australia. And it really challenges this notion that Australia is a place where anyone can move from rags to riches. Uh, we find that long run mobility uh, is probably about as low as it is in, in a much more, much more class bound society like Britain. Uh, other work that's uh, that's been done, I'm thinking of work by uh, Nathan, Nathan Deutscher and uh, uh, some of the work by, by Peter Siminski uh, has found similarly that Australia's level of social mobility uh, is considerably lower than in countries in Northern Europe uh, where what your parents do doesn't affect your own life chances. Um, yes, we're not as class bound a, a society as the United States, but, but no one else scores as badly on social mobility as the Americans either. Uh, so that's not something for which we ought to pat ourselves on the back. The interesting thing about social mobility, Mel, is, is I find that uh, it's an idea which resonates right across the political spectrum. Uh, my right-wing colleagues don't like the idea that we might want to reduce inequality, but they do like the idea we might want to boost social mobility. None of them are really comfortable with a society in which being born on the wrong side of the tracks determines how you're going to grow up. So there's maybe a political opening for measures that create a more fluid society, uh, a society like the Scandinavian nations, uh, where your life chances uh, are largely unaffected uh, by what your parents earn and what they do. Thanks, Andrew. Um, turning now to another sort of question about the, the rebuild and how we, how we build our economy on the other side of this and, and uh, deal with the debt. Uh, from Ollie on Facebook, can Andrew comment on which sectors Australia should strategically target to grow out of COVID-related debt? Uh, Ollie, I, as we've uh, talked about before, there is a challenge for governments uh, picking uh, the industries of the future. Uh, the forecasting models for future industries tend not to perform very well. Uh, when I wrote a, a book called The Economics of Just About Everything, I had a bit of fun with a, uh, a survey called Workforce 2005, which had been done in 1995, uh, which forecast which jobs would grow and which would shrink. Uh, it turned out that there was almost no relationship between what they forecast and what actually happened. Uh, so, in my view, we need to invest in uh, broad-based skills. Uh, if you put all your eggs in one basket uh, of education, you can find your, yourself a little trapped when the economy shifts. Uh, so, whereas if you invest in uh, bro a broad set of skills, then you've got an ability to continue to retrain as the labour market changes. Uh, this isn't just theory. We, we see it empirically. Uh, countries which have uh, very narrow apprenticeship systems, like Germany, tend to have great outcomes for apprentices when they're in their 20s, but not so good education outcome, earnings outcomes for apprentices or uh, for tradespeople when they're in their 50s uh, because they've tooled up in a set of skills which is, has become redundant as the economy has changed. Uh, Switzerland has a different model in which they have more broad-based apprenticeships, uh, lower, and that means slightly lower earnings in your 20s but higher earnings in your 50s uh, and uh, workers who are better off overall. Uh, so we need to think about these broad skills. Uh, in some sense, uh, your skills can be a bit of a shock absorber to a changing labour market. Uh, so whether you're uh, doing technical training or university training, uh, we, you, should, you should be choosing skills that recognise that the labour market of 50 years' time is going to look very different from the labour market of today. Uh, and that the skill that is going to be most in demand uh, is the ability to continue to learn. Uh, we also want to think about ways of, of providing those bite-sized chunks of education, uh, whether that's through universities doing better recognition of MOOCs, uh, whether that's through short courses that are in some ways accredited by our high edu higher education institutions. 
lot of this on-the-job training happens in certain occupations, you know, the continuing legal education that lawyers are required to do. Uh, but uh, in other industries, such as if you're a mechanic, uh, it's much more ad hoc. Uh, we don't tend to certify those, uh, those ongoing uh, education sessions that mechanics do. Uh, and a lot of the education, you know, I've, I've noticed uh, spending a lot of time in uh, uh, mechanics workshops over the course of the last couple of years uh, is happening through people watching YouTube videos. Um, that's fine as far as it goes, but when electric driverless cars are the norms, uh, we might when we might need something more formal. <laughs> Agreed. I think one of the things we're really going to need, um, and I, I, I wrote about this in the Canberra Times last week, is a, a need for a, a new economic compact between business and government, that business does need to step up to some extent and take on part of that role of training its own workforce. It's not, mm. it's not, a, it's not an argument about whether or not we should be, you know, um, having temporary migrants and things like that. It's really about investing in that human capital and in ensuring that people have the opportunity for lifelong learning. And that's something that government and the private sector need to do hand in hand, I think. Um, a good question here, which I've been saving um, from James on Facebook uh, in relation to the debt. Why has a coronavirus levy been ruled out? Young people will be paying for this forever, if not. Uh, James, we've, we have had these levies in the past. We had them for uh, East Timor. We had them for the gun buyback. And of course, we've got the Medicare levy. Uh, I think the, uh, the burden is on the government at the moment to come up with a way of showing that it's able to uh, balance the, uh, the budget as we, uh, as we come over the medium term. Uh, obviously, taking on some debt in this period made total sense. Uh, that's what most advanced countries have done. Uh, but again, if we're uh, going to be defending every single tax loophole and tax break for multinationals, it's going to make it getting back an awful lot harder. Uh, you know, just to take one example, uh, we now have a situation uh, where uh, a significant share of multinational profits are being funneled through tax havens. Australia's failure to effectively crack down on tax havens uh, means that small Australian firms end up paying more tax uh, and end up being placed at a competitive disadvantage to multinationals who aren't paying their fair share. Uh, so both on the personal side and on the corporate side, uh, we're up for the conversation around tax fairness. Thanks, Andrew. Um, a question here from Darren on Facebook uh, about, you know, the opportunity for younger people on the other side of this. Should we cancel vocational and university student debts? This is obviously a live issue in the States where they have, I think, a much bigger issue with student debt than we do with the HEC system. Um, what's your view on this? Yeah, when Joshua and I were writing Innovation Plus Equality, uh, largely for a US audience, because we were publishing for MIT Press, uh, we argued that the US should adopt Australia's X system, uh, that the United States would be a much fairer country uh, if it uh, allowed income contingent loans uh, rather than the uh, ad hoc private sector loan market that they currently have, uh, which hits people particularly hard when they lose work uh, and uh, can contribute to a whole lot of uh, unfairness in the way in which uh, those loans are recovered. Uh, the thing about attending university though, is it's both a public and a private benefit. Uh, you raise your earnings and you raise the earnings of those, are, those around you. Uh, university educated workers are more, pro more productive and uh, that spills over to the person next to them, but it also shows up in their own pay packet. So the reason we introduced tax as a labor go government in the uh, late 1980s uh, was recognizing that uh, university students should pay a, a portion of that increased earnings gain. Uh, just to put a, number, a rough figure on it, uh, the earnings gain is in the order of 10% uh, a year for each year of ed additional education. So over the course of a three-year degree, you're talking about something like a 30% earnings boost, uh, which adds up over a lifetime to considerably more than uh, what people are paying, ba paying back through HEX. Uh, but we do need to make sure those HEX debts don't get out of control. Uh, we need to recognise that uh, uh, hex, uh, the, the cost of hex charges is not a particularly useful market signal uh, because people don't tend to choose universities based on a cost that they're going to be paying many years into the future. Uh, so as Britain found a couple of years back, uh, there is a risk if you simply uncap hex uh, that the, uh, the, the hex uh, costs go through the roof. Uh, I wouldn't, though, think that the right thing to do uh, in the current environment is to considerably add to debt uh, by effectively making a transfer to those who've attended university 
uh, uh, but not to those who haven't attended university. Uh, you'd be making a large wealth transfer to some of the most affluent Australians. Uh, better if you're going to do something like this uh, to target the, uh, the, the relief uh, on people who are just coming into university where you might make the difference between someone from a disadvantaged background attending or not attending. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that completely. And But just to add my own little question to the end of this, um, as you rightly point out, the, the beautiful thing about the HEX design was that it, it your repayments kicked in when you saw that sort of benefit of, of your education flowing through into higher pay packets. Mm. But just before this crisis hit, actually, the government reduced the threshold, the, the earnings threshold at which HEX started to kick in. Um, and it's actually arguably now, you know, doesn't reflect that that benefit. Do you think it might be time to, to perhaps temporarily lift that again, lift the, the earnings rate at which uh, HEX repayments commence? Yeah, Emma, I've always thought that uh, HEX ought to kick in when you earn more than average earnings. Yeah. Uh, that seemed to be part of the social compact. We're going to ask you to pay back a portion of the cost of your university education. Uh, it'll be somewhere between a third and a half, uh, but you won't pay unless you earn more than a typical, worker, a typical person. And so when people talk about those who uh, haven't repay, re repaid their HEX, uh, I tend to think of that as being a, a feature rather than a bug of the system. Uh, if you attend university and the promise of university isn't realised for you, if you don't out-earn the typical worker, um, you don't pay back. Uh, and if you choose to, uh, to do something outside the formal labour market, whether that's uh, uh, volunteering in the, in the community sector uh, or raising kids, uh, then similarly, you won't, uh, you won't pay back. And um, we break that when we take the uh, the threshold down too far. So yes, I've I've been worried about that, and I've seen it sort of ebb and flow. You know, it goes right back to the Howard government attempting to to bring these threshold thresholds down. Uh, keep it simple. If you don't earn more than average, you don't start paying back. Couldn't agree more. Um, look, our final question. Um, it was one that was asked early on, but I think it's a terrific one to wrap up on. Uh, it's from Mahid on Facebook. Um, and I'll just preface it by saying that there's been a lot of talk out there that suddenly Scott Morrison's, a, 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 if not a socialist, then a, um, at least a Keynesian. Um, and I think, you know, there's been a good display of bipartisan support during the immediate crisis. Um, but what Mahid wants to know, and I think it's a good issue to, to finish this conversation on is, what might Labor have done differently? Mahid, it's a, it's a great question. And I would have loved to have the opportunity to be in there shaping the response. There's, there's been a few people who've, who've said to me, oh, you know, Labor really dodged a bullet by uh, losing the last election. It's, uh, it's much better you're in opposition. I completely disagree with that view. I think uh, Labor governments have a special responsibility to look after the most vulnerable. Uh, and I would have loved it if I'd been had the opportunity to be the assistant treasurer through this through this period, having served as shadow assistant treasurer in the lead up to the election. Uh, we would have uh, ensured that JobKeeper was rolled out quicker and was available to more people. Uh, we would have made sure that there was uh, a collaborative response that was bringing the opposition into the picture. Uh, we would have made sure that Australia uh, was looking after the most vulnerable all the way through. I, I worry that uh, there's been uh, too many groups who've become invisible through this process. Uh, people with disabilities, uh, older, older Australians, uh, younger casual, casual workers. Uh, it's, it's particularly easy in a, in a period of social distancing where everybody's being asked to stay home uh, to, to leave people out of the conversation. I would also have looked for ways in which we could have made progress on decarbonising our economy through the coronavirus response. Uh, we know that this is uh, an issue, particularly for young people, but effectively for all of us. Uh, and using one existential threat to tackle another uh, is smart reactive, reactive policy, uh, which I think we, uh, we would have done very effectively. Also, because we're the party of education, uh, we would have been working harder with schools to ensure that distance learning uh, didn't get exacerbate uh, socioeconomic gaps, which is one thing that I, I believe we're going to see quite strongly as schools resume, uh, that there's going to have been a widening of the gap between the uh, children from affluent backgrounds and the children from left, less affluent backgrounds. And we would have used it as a chance uh, to work with universities rather than against them. Uh, to ensure that uh, universities 
have the opportunity to play the the kind of serious role that they ought to be uh, to, to be running in this uh, in this crisis. And finally, as uh, Shadow Assistant Minister for Charities, I can't help but mention that we would have worked much more collaboratively with charities. Uh, they, the Charities Crisis Cabinet that's been set up uh, has had a range of very reasonable asks, uh, looking at ways in which we can help to uh, assist charities at a time when they're uh, struggling for donations and volunteers, yet being asked to do more than ever before. Uh, so helping the helpers would have been a priority for us. Emma, thank you to you. Thank you for all of those who asked questions and, and didn't that we didn't have time to, uh, to get to. Uh, I love these sorts of conversations. I'm a public policy nerd, as you can probably tell, uh, and I really value the role that per capita plays uh, in the public conversation. Uh, if these things are questions I haven't answered, uh, feel free to drop me an email. Uh, I'm pretty easy to find at the modestly named andrewlee.com. Uh, you might even sign up for my newsletter, newsletter at the same time. Uh, but thank you, all of you, for being part of this really important discussion. Thanks very much, Andrew. And I think um, all those things you just mentioned about what Labor might do differently, uh, this process isn't over. We will have a big job on the other side of the immediate crisis. And I look forward uh, to seeing Labor prosecute those arguments uh, for a better, fairer society. And Per Capita will absolutely be part of that conversation too. Thanks for the opportunity today. I've enjoyed it.